Most gracious Father, it is because in your love and mercy you do not let us go that we are able to come together and hear you and be transformed by you. As we continue in worship, may your word speak deeply to each of us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. We live in a world that is desperately in need of change. We lament one more suicide bomb that kills innocent men, women, and children. We're heartbroken to know that there are millions and millions of refugees who are living in camps and squalor. It burdens us to know that, that for some people, all of life is about violence and war and drugs and gangs and hopelessness. We, we lament that there are still billions of people in this world who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. And all of this truth, this need for change, weighs upon us, and then we ask, but what do we do about it? When we consider all of the need of the world, what can one person, one church, one group of people do to make any difference? And and we think, and we talk, and and we make plans, and, and all of that is good, but ultimately, ultimately, what we can really do is to pray. We pray. We pray because we believe that the answer to these problems is not in us, it's in God. We believe that that the means of turning hopelessness to renewal and to restoration is ultimately in the hands, in the power of God. We pray so that we are able to hear God when he calls us to be involved in the various issues of life. When he calls us to be a voice for him in a world that doesn't know him. But the only way to know what God is calling us to, the only way to understand the plan of God for the world, is to pray. But it's not just about us as individuals praying. I believe that that we will make a difference in the world as God's people when we somehow corporately unify our prayers together. We need more than just our isolated prayers, as important as those are. But we need a unified commitment to pray as one. To know God's purposes and plans as one. And we get a little glimpse of this, of God's people praying in this eighth chapter of John's Revelation. 
Revelation 8 describes the opening of the seventh and final seal. And that's significant, not only because it's the final, the last seal, but because it's the seventh seal. And seven is the perfect number in the scriptures. So this seal, opening this seal is, is the culmination, it's the apex of all the seals that have been opened. And John tells us that as soon as that seventh seal is opened, there is silence in heaven for 30 minutes. For half an hour, all worship ceases. For half an hour, all songs cease. For half an hour, all prayers cease. For half an hour, all conversation ceases. For 30 minutes, nothing but silence. I'd like to experiment for a moment. We're going to spend 60 seconds in silence this morning. You multiply that times 30, that's a lot of silence. I almost stopped at 30 seconds because I could already feel us getting a little fidgety. Silence is hard for us. But silence can be very powerful for us too. Silence can allow God to speak to us in ways that we can't hear with all the noise and the busyness of our world and our life. Sometimes we need silence in order to draw us back to our priorities, to stir us and to shake us in ways that aren't going to happen with all the activity and the noise of our lives. I find that many of us are apprehensive, if not fearful, about silence. And I think part of that is because you can't control silence. I mean, even when we pray... We tend to pray with us talking virtually all the time. And there are good reasons for that. And we're called to do that. But just sitting in silence is hard because then you can't control the conversation anymore. And God may say things to us that we don't want to hear. He may ask us to do things that we don't want to do. So we just keep talking so we don't have to hear. We, we, keep, we keep being busy and active so that we don't have to hear. And sometimes we just need to release control of our prayers and let God take us places we'd rather not go. And do the exact opposite of what makes us feel relaxed and comfortable. 
And it's, it's, it's this need to remove ourselves from busyness and noise that is so much a part of our lives that I don't even think we realize it because we are so used to it. It's for the reason that we need to get out of that at times that we've organized this prayer vigil. That's one of the reasons we're doing it. And one of the reasons why it's not, we're not just praying together, but we're coming to one place to pray together. That we have these rooms set aside. And for an hour, when you walk in the room, either by yourself or with some other people, however you choose to come, when you walk through that door, hopefully you're closing off life. And you're able to come and it's just you and God. And we need that because life gets into us far too much and the noise and the activity of life is so distracting to us. And, and we need some time to back up. And this prayer vigil is, is one of the ways of doing that because even in our normal routines of prayer, we have so many distractions. Now, understand that this room is not just you go sit for an hour in silence. There's a lot of of activity in the room and and ways to interact in the room and things to be active about in the room. Because after all, you think of all the time that John spends as we read through this revelation, only 30 minutes of it is silence, at least as much as we know. But there's still something about getting away from the normal routines of life and just being us and God. And we're hoping that this room is going to help us do that. But John's image isn't just about silence. In fact, the majority of the image has a lot of activity. It's very active. And the active events focus around the altar the place of worship and sacrifice and prayer. It's the altar on which the prayers are, are, uh, are prayed in the Old Testament. In Old Testament worship, the altar is the symbol of God's power and presence and spirit. And it's on the altar that the priest burns the incense, which is actually a gift of God's grace. God has called the priest to come into this most holy place, to come into God's presence. And scripture is clear that no one can see God and live. But God wants that interaction. And so he says, burn incense, create smoke, literally bring a haze to this room so that there is, a, there is a, somewhat of a barrier, a buffer between you and me. You can almost say it's an act of atonement from God to spare this priest from being annihilated and wiped out by being in the presence of God. The incense and the smoke of it allows him to be in God's presence. And it's not an idea that the priest had. It's an idea of grace from the mind of God. When you look at the the first chapter of Luke, Zechariah, the priest, is is in the temple and he is burning incense, offering prayers to God for the people. And and he is the the intermediary in that moment between God and the people. He's there representing them and representing God to them when he goes out. And it's while he's in there burning the incense and praying 
that the angel appears to him and says, Zachariah, you and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a little boy, and he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. And we end up calling him John the Baptist. Isn't it interesting that the burning of incense, which is in many ways the symbol both of our distance from God and the means that God has given us to draw close to him, that those, both those elements are still a part of heaven. It says something to us about the ongoing grace of God, that we're not equal with God when we get to heaven. We still need his grace. We, we still need grace in heaven to be in the presence of God And it's this grace symbolized by the incense in which God calls us to pray. John says that the prayers of the saints mix with the incense as it rises to God. And there is something significant and heaven-like about our prayers being mingled together. Sort of like stomping on grapes until each individual grape disappears and it becomes one vat of juice. And when we join our prayers together, our prayers become more than just the sum of the parts. Our prayers help the barriers to come down between us as we join together and to see each other the way God does. There's something powerful about even just the literal nature of people praying together. I remember when when I was a child and we go to camp meeting and We didn't do this at our church, so it took me a little bit getting used to it. But I remember going to camp meeting, and you'd have maybe a 1,000 people in the tabernacle. And the leader would stand up and say, let's pray. And he would start praying, and everybody in the place would pray out loud, all at the same time, everybody all at once. And this cacophony of sound would rise up. And as a young child, that was a little bit intimidating at first until you got used to it. And then when the leader finished his prayer, it was like a a ripple in the pond. Everyone else, as it went out, began to die down and everyone stopped praying. I know there are places in the church, places of the world, where Christians still pray like that. And, And as I was pondering that, there was something powerfully symbolic about that. Of all of our prayers being mixed together so you can't hear one person from another. It's just God's people praying. Mixing together our prayers as one in the Spirit of God. This also is one of the reasons why the the prayer room is significant for us. It's not just about removing noise and distractions, but it's also a place where we come. We come, yes, alone in prayer, but we come realizing that, that our prayers are a part of something bigger than us. For 504 hours, at least one person will be in that room praying. So when you come to pray... Someone else is finishing and leaving the room as you enter. And when you're done praying, someone else is coming in as you exit. And I think that there is something very powerful in, in, in recognizing that. So much so that we, we are working on some, some symbols that we can use to remind us that we are all part of the chain united in prayer. 
so that the person who prays the first hour is, is united to the person that prays in the 504th hour and everyone in between. And that our prayers are not just one individual person that comes to the room separated from everyone else. We are all together in this. And your prayers and my prayers, all of our prayers are mixed together. And God says that is pleasing to him. And there is power in the united prayers of God's people. But there's even still more imagery to this this picture that John gives us. John describes the angel holding the golden censer, this bowl. And it's an interesting word because the Old Testament, as far as I can tell, the Old Testament word that here is translated censer in the Old Testament is translated frankincense. In Exodus 30, it was was one of the key elements to, to that incense mixture that the people were to burn only in the temple. And, and, and frankincense was, was a valuable part of that. And frankincense came to have a messianic perspective to it, an imagery to it. So that in Isaiah chapter 60, the prophet speaks of Gentiles who will come and will bring incense to God's messenger. It adds something to understanding when you remember the gifts that the Magi bring to the infant Jesus. I don't know if the Magi understand everything about Jesus, but something in them says, this baby's a king. And we need to treat him like one. And now when you come to, to the New Testament, the incense has, the word for incense has now become the holder of the incense. The censer, the bowl in which the incense is placed. And John says that it's out of this censer that the incense mixed with the prayers of God's people go up to God. And it strikes me as a profound image that our prayers are held by Christ. That our prayers have meaning and purpose and power only in the hands of Christ. We can pray a thousand hours in that prayer room, and if it's not about Christ, they don't mean anything. We can pray every day for the rest of our lives, and if it's not about Christ, it's not going to accomplish the purposes and the goals that God has for us and that we have for ourselves. They're empty prayers without Christ. We pray because of Christ, because of his death and his incarnation and his resurrection, his ascension and the promise of his return. It's because of Christ that we're able to pray. Because not only do our prayers go up from him, but he tells us that he actually takes our prayers to the Father. And as we pray together here, Jesus prays our prayers in the presence of the Father. And in Christ, our prayers have meaning and purpose. They simply cannot have without Christ. The same imagery and the, the ideas that we see in that censer, we see in this table. 
in this table, we're reminded of we're brought into the presence of Christ and all that he's done for us. Without Christ, this table is nothing. Without Christ, this table is a mockery. It's only because of Christ that this table has meaning, that the bread and the cup are are a means of grace for us. It's only because of Christ that this table has power to speak to us the truth and the word and the grace of God our Father. And the censor that John reveals on that day is, is really what we see in this table this day. But we need to, as we think about our, our corporate prayers and the prayers that are in Christ, we remember that Christ is the one who draws our prayers together. And one of the reasons our prayers don't have power and, and focus like they should is because we're not united together in them. We're all sort of shotgunning things and going our own direction and, and, and doing our own thing instead of presenting a united front of prayers and the power and the grace of God. Because at this table, it's all about the grace of God. The ground at this table is level. We're only welcome at this table because of the grace of God. We can only come to this table because of the grace of God. And it's that grace of God and the acknowledgement of that grace of God that unites us together because none of us is any better or any more worthy than anyone else. We're all unworthy completely. But in the grace of God, through the blood of Christ, we're united. And when our prayers are united, when we become a community of prayers, something happens. Even change happens. A few weeks ago, I, was, I saw an article in the Buffalo paper about a, a most unusual uh, air, airline flight. It was a... Um, it was October, Saturday, October 3rd, about 4 o'clock in the morning, when there, became, there was a disturbance that, that came in the plane. Now, we're, you know, we're getting kind of used to uh, unruly passengers disturbing flights. And in fact, if you fly very much, you probably see that far too often than you would like to. But this was a little bit of a different twist. It, it wasn't passenger and crew fighting it was the crew fighting each other. I, I don't know all the details. They didn't have them all at that time. But some, for some reason, the pilot wasn't happy with the takeoff announcement that, that the, the head flight attendant made. And so he called her into the cockpit and he verbally berated her. And she went back upset and told her other, other co-workers and some more of them went in. And this time the pilot and the co-pilot physically assaulted them. And they came out, they had bruises on their arms and things. Well, that got all the flight crew involved. So they came in and basically were storming the cockpit. And the next thing you know, they're punching each other. And they're, they're rolling, wrestling, rolling out of the cockpit into the galley. And if you, you look up and all the passengers, about 106 of them, are standing, staring, wide-eyed at the crew of their plane, wrestling and fighting in the front of it. 
I mean, there was a point, they pretty well determined, there was a point of time when nobody was even in the cockpit. And the plane's 30,000 feet in the air. And I read that article and I, two thoughts came to my mind almost simultaneously. One is, wow, that had to be one of the scariest things to be on that flight. I'm glad I wasn't on that flight. And the other thought that struck me was, man, that kind of seems like the church. You know, we spend so much of our time fighting each other and typically over pretty unimportant things. And the rest of the world is looking at us, mouth agape, eyes wide open, thinking, what in the world are they doing? And no wonder, despite what we say, no wonder nobody wants to fly our airline. Or hear what we have to say about Jesus. They look at us and say, well, they don't act any different than any other institution. But we are different because of Christ. And if our prayers and this prayer vigil is going to mean anything and accomplish anything, it's got to be because we have united our hearts together in Christ to pray as one. And we may disagree about things and we're going to, you know, that's just human nature. That's just life. But our focus and our unity is in Christ. And we have decided that whatever differences we may have, they go on the back burner. And we're going to pray as one for God to work in this world and to bring about changes in this world. Changes that we couldn't dream or imagine on our own. That justice will be taken care of. The people who, who live in, in squalor and poverty would find hope. The people who are despairing would see light. That God would do something marvelous. I hope that you will be a part of this. I hope and pray that you'll join in this, in this three-week time of prayer. And that even as you come to the table today, you will come with a sense of uniting your heart with all of our hearts. Not just in general, but in a spirit of oneness as we pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for all the ways in which you have poured out your grace upon us. Lord, we ask now that as we prepare to receive the bread and the cup, we will be overwhelmed by your grace. Your grace to come And your grace that has been, and your grace that is here right now. Pour out your abundant blessing upon the bread and the cup. We pray that as we eat them, as we take them into our bodies, 
that we will know the power and the presence of Christ through the Holy Spirit. That our hearts will be invigorated anew for the work that you want to do in us and through us in this church and in this world. Holy Father, unite our hearts in Christ. And may we come today and receive these gifts in that spirit of unity in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.